Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Is it warm in here? Can we, uh, how about if we open up some, some windows? Is that, uh, windows getting some air? How about if we uh, just take a few moments and connect with yourself? So just go inside now for a moment and uh, notice what's going on for you. Whatever is going on, absolutely fine. Don't try to. Don't try hard to be joyful. <clears throat> it doesn't work. Um, just, uh, just let your experience be whatever it is. If you are feeling energized or expansive or well-being, then don't miss that, please. Let yourself relax into it. And whatever you happen to be experiencing, just take a few moments to know that you're alive. and open up to anything that's here in the moment breathing, sounds, sensations just let it be all held in the space of awareness So, let yourself come back. Well, if you came here hoping for a silent retreat day, I hope you're not too disappointed. But we're we're gonna. This is gonna be more 
interactive than the sitting space that's usually here. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm having a good time. I just want you to know that. You know, I figure if I'm having a good time, everybody else uh, will. So um, thanks for being so such a, a welcoming, open, warm, connecting crowd. Um, so we've gone through, let's see if we can get through e- each of the themes. We've gone through um, intention and mindfulness and gratitude and then uh, dealing with the hard stuff. The fifth practice is... Um, is one that the Buddha recommended as the foundation for inner peace. And that is the practice of integrity, what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. He said, if you are in harmony with your world around you, then um, you'll be in harmony inside as well. In fact, uh, I'm just remembering... There's a beautiful quote from the Buddha. For one who leads a virtuous life, it is a natural law that remorse will not arise. For one free of remorse, it is a natural law that gladness will arise. For one who is glad at heart, it is a natural law that joy will arise. So this isn't just a kind of, you know, feel-good idea. This is a key to your well-being internal and your well-being connecting with the world. <clears throat> In this chapter, um, this, is, this is the one where I, um, yeah, Shoshana really <coughs> encouraged me, okay, you just got to show it all. As, as she said, put your head down in the altar of sacrifice for the, for the, for the benefit of, of all. <clears throat> and I, so I'll read to you uh, the opening of the chapter, which was actually in the Inquiring Mind um, a few years ago. <clears throat> I'll just read a, a, a bit of it. And then we have a, a beautiful sharing from uh, Patricia Ellsberg on the power of living with integrity. I remember the moment as if it were yesterday rather than a few decades ago. I picked the infant up and held him in front of me. Although I had doubted that he was actually mine, when our eyes met, something in me knew it was true. It was like holding myself As we looked at each other, his eyes innocent and filled with wonder, I could feel myself falling in love. With my life, with its new possibilities, flashed before me. Since the age of 14, I had so many times imagined playing catch with my son. Suddenly, my reverie was stopped short. I was 22 years old. It was the late 1960s, and I was just getting the hang of being on my own. This wasn't the life I had envisioned. Terror struck. Thoughts flashed through my mind like a lightning storm as I tried to understand what had happened and how this scene came to be. 
About a year before, my neighbor's sister, Bonnie, had started dropping by from time to time when she was in the neighborhood. Gradually, our visits of friendly talk had slipped into singing together, making out, and eventually finding our way to my bed. Free love was the philosophy in those casual and permissive days, and if it feels good, do it, was my credo. I didn't stop to think about the consequences beyond making sure that we were using birth control. When she stopped coming around at some point, I just figured that was that and got on with my life. And now here I was, holding a baby. A few days before this, I'd received a Christmas card with a photo of an infant boy and a simple note on the back. Hi, my name is Anthony. I'm your son. If you want to see me, call. Stunned and paralyzed with disbelief, I'd gone into a tailspin. For the next three days, it had all seemed like a bad dream, a nightmare that I'd hoped would somehow just disappear. But then the doorbell rang, and there was three-month-old Anthony in his mother's arms. I remember Bonnie saying, here, meet your son, and passing him to me. Dazed and flooded with a swirl of emotions, I told told her I needed some time to be alone with him and carried him into my bedroom. Those first moments of letting that beautiful baby into my heart were short-lived. Confused and immature as I was, barely able to take care of myself, the thought of taking care of someone else was overwhelming. Apprehension shot through my body as I imagined how my life would be turned upside down, And then there were my parents. Telling them I had a son seemed impossible, as did introducing them to his mom, who was African-American. They were set on me marrying a nice Jewish girl. I began to panic. If I held this baby, my son, for another 30 seconds, there would be no turning back. I carried him back into the living room and thrust him into his mother's arms. I can't do this, I announced. Why didn't you tell me sooner? I remember her saying something about being afraid I'd pressure her to get an abortion. My bewilderment flared into anger as we began, and as we began to shout at each other, the tender infant in our midst started to cry. <clears throat> the spell was broken. Bonnie bundled Anthony up and stormed out of the apartment, slamming the door behind her. I collapsed on the couch as a potent mixture of shock, relief, and shame engulfed me. Over the next few days... These emotions gave way to numbness and denial. It would be 29 years before I would see my son again. When fear and confusion drive our actions, we cause suffering to others, often not realizing that we ourselves also suffer. Because I chose not to participate in his life, that beautiful, innocent baby became the victim of my fear. His mother was denied my emotional and financial support, as she faced the daunting task of being a single mom. I would not realize until years later the sadness and pain I myself carried for abandoning my son. Every choice we make has a consequence. This is the essence of what the Buddha referred to as a natural law, or as Jesus put it, as you sow, so shall you reap. That's good news when we're sowing good deeds. It's the other ones that worry us. You probably can think of times when you engaged in some kind of questionable behavior and later faced the consequences. It might have taken a while before your actions caught up with you and made you squirm, but you might also recall some of the immediate discomfort you felt when you first chose to do whatever you did, the turmoil in your gut, 
that sinking feeling or the sense that someone was looking over your shoulder, that's an immediate and useful consequence. Becoming familiar with uncomfortable feelings like these and letting them inform wise choices are the underpinnings of a peaceful mind and a joyful heart. And the chapter goes on to talk about <clears throat> not only the, uh, the consequences of that, but also the um, amazing good fortune or good karma that I had a second chance. And my son, Tony, is uh, someone very special and somebody I'm very close to. And uh, we have uh, an extraordinary relationship. He's taken my name, and I'm so fortunate that when he needs to talk to somebody, I'm the one that he turns to. But um, it was, uh, it was uh, an interesting and, and profound route back to that. I was just lucky I got a second chance. But I learned a lot in that about, and since I've been practicing, about um, how every choice we make, as, it's, as I just read, has a consequence. And if you can see on the front end, how is this going to feel later on? You can choose to prevent a lot of suffering for yourself and others and can actually um, more and more grow into seeing that this can be a basis of real joy and happiness. And we'll, we'll get into that in a little, a little while. So um, this chapter on integrity, on the the bliss of blamelessness. Uh, it's important to know that um, <coughs> it's never too late. It's never too late to wake up to the truth and to um, stay connected and aligned with your values. And when you do, when you are truly aligned with your values, with the ones that inspire you, then something magical happens you are in touch with something much greater than, than your uh, simple choices of, oh, this is going to feel good. And for that, um, I want to um, ask my dear friend and special joy buddy, Patricia Ellsberg, to come and, and share a bit about her own experience with this um, uh, the power of integrity. <clears throat> and as you might know, maybe if you don't know, uh, maybe you're familiar with the name Ellsberg. Uh, Patricia and her husband uh, Daniel Ellsberg uh, are heroes, real American heroes, and were hero, uh, heroes of mine growing up, as I did, that, have, that made a huge difference in this country. And uh, there's right now a movie that's opening up that I, I want you to know about. Uh, February 19th, I think, in the Bay Area, in, uh, in Berkeley, and, and on Shattuck in, in San Francisco, uh, that's uh, come out called The Most Dangerous Man in America, which is what Henry Kissinger called Daniel Ellsberg <clears throat> in those days long ago. And it's on the short list for um, the uh, Academy Awards, which will 
which will come out, uh, I guess the list gets decided February 2nd, but it's an incredible movie, very special, very moving. And uh, Patricia knows about staying connected to your truth no matter what. So please welcome Patricia Ellsberg. I'm uh, just going to stand. I'm, I'm still so moved by that story, uh, James. And, whoa, it brings back, uh, you know, one of the most challenging and meaningful times in my life, which is almost 40 years ago when we gave out the papers. It was our first year of marriage. And uh, I, d I didn't get married till I was 32. I'd spent a long time looking for Mr. Wright. And, uh, you know, I'd finally found him. And... Um, he had already copied the papers, but it wasn't clear that they had to come out uh, because Nixon was talking about ending the war and pieces at hand and all of that kind of thing. And Dan had protected me from reading them because they were top secret and, and um, fingerprints would make me an unindicted co-conspirator, which in fact I was. <laughs> I, I, I get all puffed up when I think maybe I'm the most dangerous woman in America. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Dan learned, and Nixon began to escalate the war. And this was a couple of months after we got married. And it seemed clear that it could be really important to have the truth revealed. The, the Pentagon Papers are 7,000 pages, top-secret documentation of the whole history of our involvement in Vietnam um, up through uh, Johnson. But, but not to Nixon. And it's filled, as he showed them to me, it's filled with such deceit, such profound lies. It would be, James, as if you had just denied that you'd ever had a son and lied and tried, it, it, one after another, and our supposed being there for democracy, and we actually undermined the elections when Ho Chi Minh could have won them, uh, from North Vietnam. We, we made sure they didn't happen. I was struck as I read it, something that Dan hadn't perceived, is the language of torturers, that these administration officials would say, one more turn of the screw or the water drop technique. And I read this, uh, and I said, this has to come out. What I had been told is that Dan might go to prison for the rest of his life. And that was what we believed when we um, actually decided to put them out. Um, we knew we only had one copy, and we knew we had to get more copies in case the FBI came down and swooped down on us. But where do you copy something filled <laughs> <laughs> with top secrets? So my job, we, we decided to do this really quickly because an article had come out in the Boston Globe that Dan was talking about the paper. So Night and day, I was chopping top secrets off 7,000 pages of documents, which is not what I 
you know, been brought up to do. <laughs> this was not my calling in life, but there I was, you know, chopping away. And then I took them into like the equivalent of Kinko's, and that wasn't so bad. But picking them up, I thought the FBI would be there and grab me, but they didn't. We were very, very lucky. So they came out eventually in the New York Times, and then they kind of would have sunk because they're pretty heavy reading. But then, then Nixon decided to enjoin the New York Times, first time in the history of the press. So this hit huge, huge headlines, and the Times had to stop printing them. But we had copies, so we gave a copy to the Washington Post. They enjoined the Washington Post, and they stopped. We had more copies. <laughs> so by the time we got through, and it went up to the Supreme Court, by the time the Supreme Court made their judgment, 17 more papers had published excerpts. So they couldn't say, enjoin the press. It was just impossible. So then the press, somebody announced that it was Daniel, and the press descended on us, and we just escaped by sheer luck from this onslaught of press. No, nothing, in, in no handbag, in no suitcase or anything. And, um, and then the FBI starts coming to our apartment, we heard. And we're underground. And an indictment comes down on Dan. And there was the biggest manhunt for Dan and me since the Lindbergh kidnapping. <laughs> they went all over the country, all over the world. <laughs> It was a junket. And we were just in Cambridge giving out the papers. <laughs> and and at, at, at one point, Walter Cronkite, who was the most trusted man in America, contacted the lawyers. And while the FBI was searching all over, Dan went to a home in Cambridge and, and was interviewed on CBS nationwide. <laughs> that was the best part. <laughs> but... Then, then there was a, they indicted Dan first for 25 years and then eventually 115 years for revealing the truth. The truth is so powerful and so challenging to those who want to deceive and, and uh, who do not live by the truth. And the moment I want to describe um, was a very powerful one. We finally got the papers distributed and the Supreme Court said more could come out. And Dan had to show up for this indictment to co- a courtroom. So we came up from underground, and uh, the lawyers had said the FBI would want to um, grab him and, and have him go into the court with the, the um, handcuffs. So we went through a back route. But even so, we were surrounded when we got out of the car. And the press was saying, you know, what gives you the right to uh, real top-secret documents? And it was mayhem around us. And Dan had given me a sheet of paper in case he was grabbed, where I was going to read his statement, but fortunately he got to make it, that he took sole responsibility for giving out the papers because a lot of his colleagues were getting investigated. So I was standing in this circle of chaos and holding Dan's hand, and Dan was making the statement to um, cameras all, all around the world, taking responsibility for this act of conscience and truth-telling. And it was like an electrical force just standing there. It, 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 we were lifted by the power of standing in the truth. Extraordinary feeling. And what's little known about this story is that 
we had been very influenced then, especially by Gandhi and by um, draft resistors, being in present of a draft resistor who gave a talk. And Dan, the idea came as he was weeping in the men's room, what can I do if I'm willing to go to prison the way this wonderful draft resistor um, was willing to do? And so Gandhi has this um, phrase, and it's really at the core of his actions, satyagraha, you've probably, many of you have probably heard of it. It's actually holding on to the truth is the literal translation but he translated it as truth force or soul force or even love force. And that was palpable, palpable throughout the whole trial that we were in the field of that truth force. And it just gave us an opportunity to speak in front of the press about the truth of what we were doing in that country. And it really was a a privilege to be under that kind of... um, you know, famed to in order to speak out the truth of what our country was doing. And the, the the amazing thing is that Nixon then sent the plumbers to break into Dan's psychoanalyst's office, and all sorts of cover-ups and hush money, and actually their fear of the truth caused them to take actions which enormously contributed to his uh, possible impeachment and his resignation, which led to the end of the war, helped helped in ending the war. So you never know, you never know what you do. That draft resistor that moved Dan to take that stand in the face of you know the administration and then their overreaction, you never know the power of truth. And I'll close my remarks. I'm going to lead a short meditation. I'll close my remarks by saying that I believe that every one of you is a hero in your own right when you stand up for what you believe. And that just, I think Sylvia said this, I heard it from maybe you, just getting up in the morning and facing your day in the face of often those challenges that life presents. When people come up to me and they say, you know, your husband is my hero. And amazingly enough, 40 years into marriage this August, I can say the same which is saying a lot. (laughs) But it's also true that every one of us faces such challenges and just being able to stay in any way connected with an open heart or to awaken joy in the face of those challenges in my mind is heroic. So I'm going to just lead a, a brief meditation. I have the great joy of doing this each month in James's class. And, and I get to sing the melody of my soul each, each month. And I put up a little sign-up sheet. I, I'd be a, a pleasure to email you if you want a, a, a download of a guided meditation, which will be on the, the first track of a CD I'm making with four meditations, with music and all of that. And I'd love to give it to you as a gift. And... Um, um, Yeah, so let's get in touch with the truth force in each of us. So get comfortable and close your eyes if you wish. Imagine you're breathing through your heart, in and out through your heart. 
and let the beauty of that open heart fill you with a sense of relaxation and well-being. You feel the relaxation in your face and your jaw and your tongue. Let it flow down your neck and shoulders, down your torso to your belly. Take some deep belly breaths. And feel the power of the truth flowing down your legs to your feet. And sense your connection to the earth and its life-giving power. And open now to the truth of our oneness and interconnectedness, which was the essence of Gandhi's truth, the recognition that we are one. Become aware how we all breathe the same air and are sustained by the earth. that we are all born from a mother's womb and that every child is as precious as our own or those children of those we love. Now let come to mind a time when you acted from this sense of interconnectedness and oneness. When you have listened to the voice of your own conscience and experienced the power of holding to your truth. And really feel that. What does it feel like in your body? In your being. And from this sense of power, from standing in your own truth, ask yourself how you can live with greater integrity in your own life now. What truths do you need to recognize? What patterns of behavior, if any, do you want to change? And imagine for a moment what it feels like to live from a place of greater integrity and wholeness. To be more fully connected to the truth force or soul force or love force of your being. How does that feel? What do you need and intend to do to realize 
this possibility. And if you wish, take a moment to make a commitment to yourself to take a step, small or large, in this direction. And gently and slowly come back here, opening your eyes and moving your hands and feet, and coming back to the present moment, standing fully in your own truth. Thank you so much. <laughs> And, and, and come to the movie, which will tell this story in, in, in living color, uh, February 19th on Shattuck, uh, the Shattuck Theater in Berkeley and in San Francisco, and then May, uh, March 5th to 11th at the San Rafael Film Center. Okay, thanks. <laughs>
be, um, have the wonderful pleasure of meeting later today. He says, in Buddhism we talk about the fragrance of morality. It means that when you practice integrity, it's almost like you have an extraordinary divine scent around you. And you magnetize everything you're searching for, all the goodness, virtue, joy, freedom, even enlightenment, enlightenment if that's what you're looking for. Integrity is the first step towards the highest goals you are trying to actualize in this human existence. When we practice maintaining integrity and demonstrate it through our actions, our speech, the way we treat other people, we become extraordinary examples to inspire others. It's like how one candle can light hundreds of candles, and those hundreds of candles can light thousands of others. Can you imagine such an enlightened society? But we must start with ourselves. When you practice integrity, you will see the reward immediately. You'll discover that you're happy, that your friends and family members are happy. Even your dog is happy too. <laughs> that is because of the fragrance of morality. And so now um, to anchor the the point with uh, a beautiful song that I love uh, on this subject is uh, Eve Decker once again. And this is from uh, a, a really um, incredible album, which I, is available, is it here? Called uh, Commentaries on the Perfections of the Heart, where Eve did a song for each of the ten perfections in uh, in Buddha Dharma and this is the song on virtue moment to tune, and I think you'll be glad that I did. <laughs> so um, enjoy your breathing. Hatred's fire The fruit of happiness Does not lie In meeting our desires I do no harm To other living beings Don't let us steal No use Hurt no one With a sexuality And you're on your way To 
So, moving along, uh, after you uh, are, not after, you don't have to wait until you're fully aligned, but uh, the next step in, in this process that, that occurred to me uh, is uh, the key that the Buddha said is, uh, is, is the way to freedom, which is letting go. The third noble truth. The first noble truth, there's suffering in life. Second noble truth, our suffering is caused by attachment, wanting, holding on to things being a certain way. And the third noble truth, the real release, the sure heart's release is about letting go and not being completely uh, at the mercy of our attachments. And so this uh, chapter on letting go actually has uh, a number of different um, components to it, uh, letting go of our stuff that we think we need. You ever have a full closet? It's so stuffed, and you think, oh, I know, well, I need that. I need, and then you finally clean out, and it feels so good to clean out. It feels better than all that stuff. It's the space that comes. We don't need that stuff. Most of it. And when we let go, there's a free an ease and a freedom. Letting go is about discerning what you want from what you really need and putting down the extra baggage. So it's letting go of stuff, letting go of the way we crowd our lives. We can accumulate as much 
on a mental level as on a physical level and getting some balance in our life. Isn't that a word that we crave? Oh, I could use a little bit of balance, a little bit of space. It doesn't happen magically. You have to kind of make it a priority so that when you're you, when you think, oh, I'll just do this. I once heard a, a uh, an organizational uh, expert saying, um, uh, or uh, yeah, an organizing an, a, an organizer, one of these decluttering experts, <clears throat> saying, watch out for the word just, as in, I'll just do this. I'll just add this one, or I'll just look in my email before I blah blah blah. There's this danger that comes. We'll just add this and this, and not realize that we're pretty soon adding so much that uh, our we get indigestion from our full plate. Um, so it's letting go and creating some space in our life, and then the the true letting go is um, letting go of the control that we never had in the first place. And one way that we try to maintain some kind of control unconsciously is that we hold on to our stories of what we think is true, what we think life is like, what we think th- how do we think things should be. And when life doesn't match up to our stories, which it often doesn't if you haven't noticed, uh, it's really painful, and when we can let go of our stories, then we have what we left. What we have left is the truth. So um, I thought I'd just uh, share a uh, a passage and uh, share a, a practice uh, around this. <clears throat> what story am I believing right now? Is the section. One evening during the break in an awakening joy class, I heard a cheerful voice which I soon connected to the middle-aged man buoyantly standing, striding down the aisle to greet me. James, I have to tell you something. When he came closer, I could see it was Daniel, the accountant that I had seen once for spiritual counseling, who was now taking the course. It worked, he beamed, and I just want to say thank you. Sometimes that happens. It worked, it worked. what, What is that about? He must have known by the look on my face that I was sorting through my memory bank to find out what had worked. He reminded me of the time months ago when he had asked for my advice about reacting negatively to to feedback from his wife. Whenever she'd suggest something, he'd take it as a criticism. I know she loves me and means well, he told me at the time, but my mind says, there she goes again, trying to control me, and I withdraw and get distant. I can see I'm being reactive, but I can't seem to do anything about it. What would you need to change inside so that you wouldn't react so quickly, I'd asked him. If I didn't jump to those negative conclusions, I'd probably be much better off, he replied. But they're so deeply ingrained, I don't think it's possible to change. I could see that Daniel had convinced himself of a particular way of looking at himself and his relationship. That was the story he told himself over and over Stories of some kind are happening all the time in our mind. They arise from our past experiences or reinforce through association with present experiences. Mostly they go on outside our conscious control. A song from your teenage years comes on the radio and there you are back at your first kiss. A bird chirping outside your window carries you to some idyllic place. 
in your mind or reminds you that you're stuck behind your desk all day. The reaction is automatic. <clears throat> it's the negative stories that become a problem. Um, let's see. So what I shared with him was what he said worked. It worked was uh, something that I often uh, share with people on retreat because um, most of the time we get stuck in our stories. And if people, once on retreat, you see how empty those stories are, um, that they're just fabrications of mind. As, as Joseph Goldstein says, if you're having trouble with your thoughts and you're in a meditation room, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> it, it really opens things up a lot. Then you don't have to beat yourself up. Where do they come from? Who knows? But if you can see they're just empty, then you've got some choice whether to believe them or not. And what I often do, and what I did with Daniel, actually, um, was give him a prescription if people can remember that those thoughts are empty, then they can lighten up and be free. And be free. So I, I sometimes write down, if they're open to it, I just kind of sense there's that rapport. I'll just write down on a piece of paper. I say, I've got a prescription for you. Here's an RX. Every time you are getting caught and lost, just remember that your prescription is right in your pocket. Keep it in your pocket for the next few days. And I wrote down and gave to him, as I sometimes do, what story am I believing right now? If you can remember to ask yourself that and you've seen the emptiness of your thoughts, oh, I've just created this nightmare or this fantasy or this whatever it is, and I'm, I've gotten hooked on it. So... This letting go chapter is really about letting go of our stories, or that's, that's a, a main principle. And I'd like you to just uh, try this um, exercise right now. You can close your eyes. Just uh, take a few moments right now to reflect and perhaps get in touch with what story do you believe about yourself or others that keeps you from experiencing well-being and joy? Might be about your past, might be about your capacities, might be about what you think is going to happen. What story do you believe? And if you got in touch with one, when you think of this story as being true, how do you experience it in your body and your mind? Now imagine for a moment what it would be like if you took it 
as just a story, didn't believe it, and could let it go. In the letting go, where it stopped having its power over you. How does it feel in your body and mind when you do that? And I'd encourage you, whenever you find yourself getting caught in an inner struggle about this theme, this issue, or any, you might just take this one since it's come to your mind. Just remember to ask yourself, what story am I believing right now? And with that understanding and wisdom, See if it's possible to let it go. Okay. Now, just a... Um, Caveat about this. It's a very powerful practice. For me, anyway. It's, it's, it's my main practice uh, uh, for confusion. But um, it's amazing how we get caught again and again and again, even though we know better. So uh, you have to be really patient and not add on more frustration saying, damn, there I am getting caught again. I can't believe it because you've just gotten caught again <laughs> when you do that. And so you have to remember all the, all the times you've practiced that story and realize that your body might not realize what your mind realizes. Oh, it's empty, but there you are getting caught. And so you've got to be have great compassion for this, this process of purification and not think that once you see it, that's it. But as you keep on seeing the emptiness of it, there's a greater and greater possibility of letting go. And uh, just the last thing I want to share before we... Um, let's see. Can I do it? Yeah. Last thing I want to share around the... Uh, from the book is uh, one of my favorite poems by Dana Falls uh, and, and uh, Shoshana read before the one about Allow. Uh, Dana Falls is this amazing poet. There's some books of hers in the, in the bookstore. Uh, the one uh, that I refer to a lot that, um, that this is from and that Allow is from is called Go In and In. She's a, a yoga teacher uh, and a poet that um, I read almost every night when we're up at retreats and tuck people into bed with a Dana Falls poem because she really gets about practice. This is Let It Go. Let it go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. 
the holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let it go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanation that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So, I think we'll just move on at this point to... Um, Yeah, he can kind of, uh, this room from here. Um, so we have um, the next theme in the book, uh, which after you've gotten aligned with your values or as you're getting aligned with your values and as you're learning to let go, uh, one of the key steps for me in working with people and also in my own life, in my own practice, is learning to be kind to yourself and love yourself. This is not self-indulgent. This is not uh, self-centered. If you truly learn to love yourself and get who you are, then you're not preoccupied with getting validation from everybody else. And then all the goodness that you see, that you find in there, shines through. Then everybody gets the goodies. That's the way I see it. If you really learn to, uh, to take care, uh, please come. We have, a, we have uh, here's Rinpoche, who makes me happy just to see him. We just read the fragrance of morality for you. Let's see. There's a there's a space right here. Here there's a there's a seat. Ah, so nice to see you. Um, so as you as you get in touch with your own goodness and your your well being, not only do you forgive yourself, but you appreciate who you are, and appreciate this mind and this body, and what do you want to do? You want to take good care of it. Not because you're selfish or self-indulgent, but it's this gift that you've been given. And the greater you can take care, you know when somebody says, take care or take good care of yourself, take good care of yourself. You belong to me. You belong to you. <laughs> and um, then, uh, then you see that who you are is even more than who you thought you were. There's something so uh, mysterious and beautiful and magical that wants to shine through and use you, use your, your body and mind to meet itself in love. 
Uh, and so for this theme, it's a great pleasure to, uh, to bring up an old friend of mine, um, Wes Nisker, who, as you might know, is the, uh, not only a, a Dharma teacher here at Spirit Rock, but the editor of Inquiring Mind and the, the voice of uh, underground radio for many years and the voice of, what, above-ground radio but still far-out progressive radical uh, radio and uh, just a really brilliant mind. We shared, we lived together for a number of years, as I said. My, my job, it, this is a letting go. He, I, he was so, he's so good and so sharp and so witty and funny and for for a while, I was saying, "Gosh, I wish I could be that funny like Wes." And then I realized, "Oh, what what they what what a really witty, sharp person needs is a good audience." So I just let go of trying to be as sharp, and I just said, "Oh, I'll just be a good audience. I can just enjoy him." And that was so much easier that way. So please welcome Wes Nisker. I always wished that I could be as positive as you. <laughs> well, I'm really, I'm really honored to be here today to celebrate Awakening Joy with James and Shoshana, who are both really dear friends. And um, I'm not quite sure why James invited me to be a part of this. I think maybe it was to remind people that within joy is oi. <laughs> There's actually a uh, scriptural uh, basis for this observation. Uh, the Buddha talked about sukha dukkha the suffering of sweetness of life, because in the sweetness is always the disappearing of the sweetness, the momentariness of it. So, the oi and joy. Um, James, James asked me to, to talk about what brings me joy, and what, uh, what arouses joy and, and goodness for myself. And uh, what immediately came to mind was a hot shower, really good, really good. But, but seriously, folks, um, I realize that one thing that really brings me solace and uh, lifts my spirits is holding a, a big perspective, a grand perspective on my life, uh, my times, history, the life of our species, evolution, the universe. So, uh, in that light, I would like to read you something. All parts of our earth are trampled, full of commerce. Fields drive back the forests. Rocks, even, are cultivated. Swamps drained. Today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. 
Everywhere are residences, people's governments, life. And this, above all, proves humans' drastic growth. We so clog the universe it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them. And nature fails us. That was written by the Roman historian Terulian in 150 A.D. It's a a reminder of uh, how tough life is and how smart humans are and that we don't need to despair about our situation, that, you know, as a species, we keep pulling through, we keep moving on. And... uh, So, holding those big perspectives can really be helpful. Now, uh, the the practice I use most of all uh, in lifting my spirits, especially in this time of year, in the darkness, uh, when the melancholy, you know, starts to settle in, is uh, a practice called the attitude of gratitude, of of thinking of all the reasons that I have to be grateful. And I've been making a list of, of them. And I, I do this with my daughter sometimes. When one of us is feeling down, we, we think of all the reasons we have to be grateful. And I did this list, uh, and I presented it on the radio, and I'd like to share it with you here. First of all, looking back at history, I feel deep gratitude for living in this place and this time. Here on the fertile continent of Turtle Island in this era of unprecedented freedom and abundance. Remember, just a few generations ago, most of our ancestors were peasants. And they had almost no fun at all. They had to sleep in the same room as their farm animals. They had to live without painkillers or Chinese food or Velcro. And just think, in only the past few hundred years, we'd nearly doubled the lifespan of the average human. So you now get twice as long to be yourself. (laughs) In the attitude of gratitude, I give thanks for the tool-making genius of our species, which has created our new global brain. I also give thanks for my new mega-giga-pixelated, app-loaded, RAM-ROM laptop and neocortex extender. (laughs) With the oh-my hi-fi, Wi-Fi, ZipFly, and GeForce graphics, even though I don't have a clue how it works, Even though I don't think these things are good for our species in the long run, it's a great new toy for now. (laughs) But there are so many reasons to have the attitude of gratitude. For instance, let's all give thanks for living in an interglacial period. (laughs) Getting caught in an ice age could ruin your whole day, you know? (laughs) And we can surely all give thanks for the opposable thumb. Without it, think of how difficult it would be to button your pants or give a thumbs up. And of now, of course, we, we know the real reason for our opposable thumbs. The better to text with, my dear. I also feel immense gratitude for the discoveries of modern science and the perspectives they offer us. For instance, astrophysicists have figured out the age of our universe, which is 13.7 billion years old today. Why not? Happy birthday to you, too. When I get depressed, I can just think, it's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. 
That should be some cause for self-esteem. <laughs> what a project. <laughs> While we're on the subject of the universe, I give thanks for the Hubble telescope, which just sent back a picture of yet another newly discovered galaxy being called the Sombrero Galaxy, which, as you might imagine, is shaped like a Mexican ad. And that galaxy contains 600 billion stars, suns. And I got to see that in my lifetime. And get this, the astronomers now estimate that in the Milky Way galaxy alone, there are over 30,000 planets that could support life. It make, and that makes it very likely that life does exist elsewhere in the cosmos. I consider that to be very good news because it takes the pressure off of us earthlings. <laughs> it means the universe is probably not all about us. And we no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. So relax. And as you settle into your seat, you might well give thanks for gravity. Because right now, all of us are hurling through space on this tiny little rock. We're spinning around on the Earth's axis at 1,000 miles an hour, orbiting the sun at about 66,000 miles an hour on this little rock. And thanks to gravity, you don't even have to hold on. Along with modern science, I also give deep thanks for living in a time and place where all the world's wisdoms and cultures are available to us. So now I can practice Buddha's blissful samadhi in the morning and then go out and listen to hot Latin music at night. Let me hear you say, Om Cha Cha Cha. <laughs> and one thing I give thanks for almost every day of my life is the fact that I live here by the San Francisco Bay, bordered by the great ocean and the majestic granite mountains, both visible on a clear day. Just to the east, the richest farmland in the world, just to the north, the hills reminiscent of Italy or Greece, growing nuts and grapes and olives. In the middle of it all, that magic metropolis, the dreamlike town at the edge of the world, Thank you, San Francisco. So the list goes on and on, and if you want to make your own, you can start by joining me in the attitude of gratitude for this next breath. It is the mystery of life moving through you. We only get about 13 million breaths in a lifetime, and then maybe none at all for the rest of eternity. So dig this one. Go deep. Taste it. I encourage you all to give thanks all around whenever you can. Love this world because if you don't love it, you won't find the energy to preserve its life and beauty. And as I always say at the end of my newscasts, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. <laughs> So uh, I'll close uh, with a little song because what really, what really brings me happiness uh, and has, and um, I'm eternally grateful for having met. Can you see him? The Buddha? So this is a song. 
smile Like the Buddha for a while Let me see you break a grin Like the Buddha's naked thin Just a little teaser Thin just like the Mona Lisa's smile It does wonders for your skin Helps get rid of double chins It could even give your eyes a twinkle Maybe raise a dimple A brand new wrinkle if you smile When you're stuck in the gloom You can't find any room Your mind is pulling its hair Bring your mind home Settle it on your abdomen And take a deep breath of air And smile Like the Buddha for a while Even though you know the facts Know that there's no turning back You just gotta face it Taste it all and grace it all with a smile And you gotta confess The world's in a mess The change is up to you and me But to turn it around You gotta get rid of the frown And become what you want it to be So smile As you sabotage the state Just because it feels so great Doesn't matter if you lose or if you win You'll always be a winner as long as there's a grin or a smile And when you cut through confusion, you'll come to this conclusion Life is one grand mystery No matter what you do, you will be tickled to be human And you won't take it too seriously You'll just smile like the Buddha for a while Even though you're gonna die So make the smile a little wry In the end, you know, the joke's on you too So make the last thing that you do be a smile Smile on yourself, smile on each other Enjoy your life Thank you very much Wes Nisker. So first, is it warm in here? Yes. Let's get, we need some air. Uh, and hopefully the people near the, near the windows will have something, uh, some, something to put on. It, it just feels a little stuffy. So uh, one, uh, one last um, song on, the, or one song on this, um, uh, this theme of learning to love yourself, be kind to yourself, really get who you are, let your smile come out. Uh, we are graced with another, with another uh, song from Eve Decker. I love this song. So in my own um, practice of metta or loving kindness, um, I discovered a difficulty. And as I talked about it with friends and other practitioners, I find that it's a very common difficulty, which is 
the difficulty of authentic and full-on metta for the self. And so um, James, when James was doing this topic for his joy class, self-love, and it was my turn. There are four musicians that come to sing for his joy class, and I'm one of them, and it was my turn. Um, I, don't ha- I didn't have a song on this topic, and I couldn't find one. They're just, and, I, and so I have a theory that it's something that we really need in our culture in particular is how to fully and completely love ourselves. And this is my song on this topic. see it there are two choices i can wait for all these voices to tell me i have made it or i can love myself the way i am the way i see it there are two choices try to do it their way find my own rejoicing music and play I've been given a responsibility to love myself like I would love a child. Chaotic, wild, and turning, building bridges, bridges burning, just as I am to love me. Maybe self-hatred protects me until the day no one rejects me. If I reject myself first, your coldness might not hurt as much. Maybe if I work harder, try more, do more, faster, longer, the day will come when I feel loved by I've been given a responsibility to love myself like I love trees. Okay, when branches crack and fall, no striving, no have-tos at all. Sparkling green that breathes me just as I am loves me. No, I do not have it all together. I never have, and I never will. And I know that you don't have it all together either. Because nothing here was made that way. We're all falling. We're all flying. We're all playing. We're all dying. We've been given a responsibility to love ourselves like we love freedom. Using courage just to see the simple truth of you and me. Love looks like humble gratitude, like endless forgiveness. Just as we are, just as we are, just as. We are just as we are.
two choices we can wait for all these voices tell us we have made it or we can love ourselves just as we I just, I just got a hit of what Ed Sullivan must have felt like, you know. Just, like, I, I haven't thought of Ed Sullivan in years and years, but it's like, you know, one incredible thing after another, and I get just to say, hey, check that one out. Yeah, you know. <laughs> That's fun. Well... Check this one out. Uh, if, if, you, uh, if you've never been to Spirit Rock before or are new to, uh, to the planet Earth, <laughs> this is Sylvia Borstein, my dear friend and um, inspiration and uh, colleague, We've done a lot of teaching together. We go back a ways. I was at her class earlier this month. That was the, the kickoff to this whole thing. Uh, it was was at Sylvia's class the, the first week of the month, and I said, how fitting that I get to kick it off uh, at, at Sylvia's class because she was, when I first moved out to the Bay Area in 1977, the first uh, Dharma connection. I went over to Sylvia's house, and there were uh, just like four or five other people there, inc- uh, including our husband Seymour and uh, and Jacqueline Schwartz, who uh, was a, a Dharma teacher uh, passing through. And, uh, and then met Sylvia, and I said, oh, I think I can live in this place. And uh, she is, um, as sometimes uh, she's known as the meta machine. Uh, <laughs> you know, she just kind of... Uh, you just feel happy being around Sylvia, and uh, she has that gift. And so uh, I asked her to speak on uh, a topic that comes very naturally to her. In the, in the book, after um, practicing and focusing on loving ourselves, the next logical step in the sequence is learning to love others and connect with others. And that includes uh, forgiving those uh, who somehow disappoint us and seeing that we have a choice there and feeling genuine metta loving kindness towards everyone around us without distinction and then uh, yeah, beyond that to feeling the joy in the happiness of others how wonderful it is that there's more happiness in the world and uh, also uh, learning to enjoy playing with others. You know, works and plays well with others is a very important <laughs> topic in, uh, on the report card of life. And uh, I can't think of anyone uh, more fitting to talk about that than, uh, than Sylvia. So please welcome her. I wanted-
You can sit up here, dear. I want to talk about you a little bit. That's okay. <laughs> Uh, apropos of you, just said a little while ago, maybe in the last half hour, you said sometimes something happens and it causes you to remember something or a certain song. And all day long I've been thinking about uh, the fact, first of all, the fact that this book could only have been written by you and should have been written by you and was waiting for you to write it, you know. And uh, uh, someone had to write a book that had, if not the word Beatles in it, the, the spirit of the Beatles in it. <laughs> And I think to myself about James is having a lot of fun today with a little help from his friends. <laughs> and that the story of James's life is that he makes very good use of friends. And I have so much enjoyed my friendship with you. One of the things that James is known for at Spirit Rock is he's quintessentially nice. You don't say that about so many people. I met one of our colleagues, Deborah Chamberlain Taylor, was ending teaching a retreat and leaving this morning and couldn't stay this afternoon. But she said, and she said, say this on my account. She said, it, she saw everybody here and she said, it so lifts up the spirit to see everyone celebrating a person like James who has done nothing but the good for so many people for so long. And that really is the view that he's generally held in. Nothing but the good. One of the things that I flash back on as I thought about the, the nothing but the good is the numbers of times that I've said to James in the course of our teaching career when we, bo we both practiced a lot together and then we both taught a lot together. And on uh, a variety of occasions, I'd get an, uh, an invitation to teach somewhere. And I'd say to James, I'd say to you, I've gotten an invitation to teach somewhere. Would you like to go with me? And James's response is always, yes, of course. Who else should we invite? <laughs> that immediately it becomes a party to which he invites his friends. <laughs> which is a very, which you can see is a very generous, and it, the, the spotlight goes immediately off him to, oh, I'm chosen. Now who else will I cho choose to bring in? I think you surround yourself internally and externally with friends. And the numbers of times, this is, I, I, I thought to myself, how can I say this without putting myself in a bad light? But <laughs> the numbers of times when we've been teaching together, then when something has wigged me out for one reason or another, and I've gotten upset with someone or something or how something is going, and I've said to James, this isn't so good. And he'd say, well, and he'd make me a bigger picture about it. Let's see it in the bigger view. And how many trees you've talked me down out of in the, in the, course, of the, in the course of the last 30 years. So whatever you want to say lovely about me, back to you and double. So <laughs> not to speak of, and it just came into my mind at this time, the time we were sitting together in Hawaii and there was news of a tidal wave that was due maybe that afternoon and no possible escape route. And so the instruction for all of the retreatants was there's nothing to do, so we'll just all sit. And James and I sitting next to each other at that time. And we sat like this. So this we hold forever. Uh, the same back. So now I want to say also, say stay. Uh, um, because I really want you to feel surrounded by your friends. We'll do a meta meditation in a little while where everyone will imagine himself or herself sur surrounded by friends. But all of these people have come because they love you. And one of the things that I flashed on when I thought about how to talk about meta 
is that in the story of the Buddha's own enlightenment experience, where he realized finally, after all his practice, what was really the cause of suffering and the end of suffering, which he talked about this morning in terms of the realization of how continually and unavoidably challenging life is, even in the best of circumstances. People have said throughout the day about the first noble truth and the suffering in life, and I think about the places in the planet now where the pain is level is enormous for various reasons of, of climate or poverty or illness or extra person-made problems of war and greed and all the things that come from that. On top of that, even here in Marin County or in the Bay Area where we live, where everybody here is relatively comfortable and in this moment we're not in uh, a, a high state of alarm about our physical well-being. Even here, with all of us and in our lives, there are no lives that are apart from suffering. And the Buddha's insight was not really about what happens to people, because everything happens to people, but really the mind that we bring to what happens to people. And someone said, everybody this morning said, and this afternoon said, great things. I kept writing down great things. I thought, I'll just read the great things that everybody <laughs> said. <laughs> but about, uh, maybe it was Rick talking about a moment of mindfulness being a moment of balanced, curious, kind attention to the moment. To have a, mo to, to have a mind that's able to stay balanced and kind and open and not struggle with the experience of the moment is everybody's challenge, regardless of where in the world they live and regardless of what's happening to them. The, the, the premise that everyone has challenges and everyone can cultivate a mind that says, I'm awake to this, I can do this, other people do this. This is an extraordinary incarnation, this incarnation as a human being. It's the only incarnation the Buddha, he said the Buddha said it was the best one to be born into because it's the incarnation of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes, and it's the incarnation in which we can really strengthen our ability to love and care for with compassion and exult with joy, as your friends are doing today in your good fortune. So just to complete that picture of the Buddha here, he sits down on the night of his enlightenment, and he is assailed, according to tradition, by all of the forces that upset the world. They're personified as being warriors on horseback coming in with spears and arrows and, uh, and uh, exotic and erotic uh, images of things that might seduce his mind into greed or lust. And in the stories and in the, in the illustration of it, which is really wonderful to see, he's protected by what seems like a tremendous uh, bowl of protection as if he's got an invisible shield. I cannot help having been a young adult in the 1950s when they had Colgate with the invisible shield <laughs> of protection. But Gardall had the invisible shield. Sorry, Gardall had an invisible shield of protection. Every time someone says the Buddha had an uh, invisible shield of protection, I think of his dental hygiene. But, <laughs> but the invisible shield of protection was really his steadfast and resolute goodwill, that he anchored himself in equanimity and he beamed out, according to the stories, a tremendous goodwill that neutralized all the forces that came to, do, to defeat him. And it's said that all of those forces turned into flower petals that fell on the ground around him. 
And I feel that that uh, I'd like to make the analogy, however big it is, that the fact that you are so good protects you by all these friends who gather around you to protect you and who mirror back to you the goodness that you mirror out to them. For all of us, our goodness is our protection. In the list of benefits of metta that people study when they're about to take on the practice of metta, they rehearse for themselves People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. And I think that you are actually in this moment appreciating the truth of that. People love good people because they reflect back to us, we all do, what, what our innate fundamental uh, capacity is. Somebody asked me just in the lunchtime today, a uh, person I didn't know came up to say hello, and they said, could you just tell me why you took up the study and the practice of Buddhism to begin with? I said, oh. I said, I could, but, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it this afternoon because it really speaks to that very point. And I haven't thought about this story in a long time. It was 1977. I did go to a weekend retreat as my first retreat. Um, I went to a weekend retreat down in the South Bay and in a private house where there were 15 retreatants probably and one teacher and it, it convened on Friday and it ended Sunday afternoon and my husband had dropped me off in a car so I had no means of escape <laughs> and I was obligated to stay there although I was uncomfortable, I was unhappy, I didn't get the instructions exactly, it was very hot and I had a terrible headache uh, because nobody told me there wouldn't be any caffeine there. Uh, <laughs> And I spent much of the weekend rehearsing the indignant speeches I was going to make when my husband picked me up on Sunday <laughs> afternoon about what he had gotten me into. And on the last day, I was doing walking meditation. I was doing walking meditation in the living room of this house. I was walking back and forth in front of the fireplace. And on, the fire, on top of the fireplace was a mantelpiece. On top of the mantelpiece there was one of those burls, redwood burls, polished that you buy in a, in a state park. Usually they say, um, sisters are forever, or uh, <laughs> home sweet home. This particular redwood burl said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? I thought to myself, ah, if this is what they're teaching here, this must be the right place. And subsequent to that, he had, for after this whole turmoil weekend, you have to know that two months later, I was on a plane going up to Toledo, Washington to spend 14 days and then the rest of my life practicing <laughs> mindfulness and loving kindness. And I look back, I think, what were the causes? Because I really had a terrible time on that weekend. What were the causes of doing that? And one of the, one of the actual the pre-proximal causes, I think, was the message on the Redwood Burl. It just so touched my heart. This is what they do here. Because this is what we do. I think that, that all day long what people have been alluding to in their presentations is kindness is innate to us. We, kindness in any of its manifestations, goodwill as friendliness, as loving kindness, as compassion, as uh, uh, empathic total joy in other people's successes. They are all permutations 
of the same fundamental wisdom that life is difficult for everyone, and it's amazing that we all continue to do it. We are so <laughs> courageous. We get up in the morning, we put on our shoes, we get out, we do it again. Life is full of things. The Buddha called it the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes. And in spite of the fact of those 10,000 joys and woes, everyone is dealing with their particular little universe of disappointments and losses. And yet, we're kind. It's amazing. There was a time, a, a year or two ago, I was sitting up in the, on the upper hall and at, at teaching a retreat, and at some point, a room full of people, I heard someone crying in the back. And uh, you know, people weep often, and it's it's fine to weep. Touching things come up. But I open my eyes to see who is weeping, and I see a woman in the back, and I know who she is because I've met her in one of my appointments and uh, interviewed times. And I see the woman sitting uh, just to the side of her, who I'm pretty sure does not know her, sitting right next to her. And I can see, and the woman is weeping. She's trying not to. You can tell when people try not to, but they are anyway. And I watched the woman next to her without looking at her. I think actually, I even maybe just opening her eyes a little bit, I watched how her arm came up and she put it on this person's shoulder for a couple of seconds and then she took it back down. And I was so touched by it. Now, if you've been on retreat, you will think to yourself right away, hey, isn't that one of the instructions? Don't do that. Don't look at people. Don't talk to them. Don't touch them in the middle of crying, it's their thing. It is one of the instructions. And still, that's what we do as human beings. When someone's crying, we stick out our arm and touch them. When they say a tsunami is coming towards the island, you reach out and you hold hands. That's what you do. That's what human beings do. We are wired to do that. We're really wired for goodness and compassion. When I think about that, it's so picks up my mind, and, and, and uh, I thought about this morning when, when we first started, and I was thinking about the general question of what is it in each of our lives, because that's really the premise of the book, is there are things that we can do to keep our mind buoyant enough to face all the woes and pains of the world. What keeps us getting up in the morning and putting on the shoes and going out again in spite of the politics and in spite of the media and in spite of the ice caps and in spite of everything else? I think it's the sense that we all have that people are fundamentally good. And given a chance, we would all turn around, make friends with each other, and make a different kind of a planet. That's why I think we keep getting up in the morning and doing that. <laughs> That's why I get up in the morning. I, uh, I got an email from somebody yesterday who said, Usually I don't listen to the radio in the morning. It's too depressing. She said, but uh, I came into the kitchen to make my tea, and my partner was making was listening to NPR. Too late, I was in there. <laughs> so I heard I heard about uh, I heard about the situation uh, more about the situation in Haiti, and she said, and I heard to my great dismay that uh, that supplies are, are now being distributed, but that uh, there are substantial instances of people not sharing, instances of upset in the distribution. So, so I felt really badly. There was one story, and then there was another story. She said, then there was a story about a pizza parlor 
in Port-au-Prince that uh, before the earthquake had uh, catered to a really upscale clientele and that most of the people in the neighborhood really couldn't normally afford that pizza. But since the earthquake, have been giving out 1,000 free meals a day. So uh, she said, it picked me up, she said, in the middle of all of that, to hear about a pocket of, a pocket of joy, a pocket of kindness. I think uh, that somebody talked this morning, oh, but it was either you or Rick, talked about the Teflon and the Velcro. That's a, such a fantastic, that's such a fantastic image. How to re, reprogram the mind so that it Teflons a little bit le less, the scary stuff, and it Velcros those moments of awareness of goodness and kindness because it so picks up the personal sense of I can do something in this world. One, one more thing I want to say about Metta before, uh, before we do um, a meditation with it. One of the things that I've, I've really been thinking about for a number of years is how each of the virtues is really a manifestation of each of the other virtues, that, um, that uh, generosity is a form of wisdom. When we look around and we see what's true in the world, we're generous. Um, when Buddha said anybody who's ever been generous, done a moment of generosity, knows that it's worth way more than whatever it was that you gave away in that moment, that the, the, the recollection of it, the remembrance of it, that, that generosity is wisdom, that truthfulness, um, uh, integrity is wisdom. We feel so much better when we're truthful. When we're, when we're truthful and we tell people the truth, we've leveled the playing field, give everybody an equal possibility. We feel better because it's the bliss of blamelessness. It's a much better thing to do. There's no remorse and there's no uh, ill intention in it. To have only good intention for all the world, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, means that I have no enemies in my mind. I have made my mind an enemy-free zone. And I think actually that that's the great secret of loving-kindness practice, especially as people learn it. I wish well for myself, but then so-and-so, 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 and so-and-so, all the way up and including people often say, you're not going to ask me to wish well for so-and-so, are you? <laughs> naming, <laughs> naming some familiar, uh, difficult person in the world. But actually the secret of it is the only, you really are always wishing well to yourself. What you're wishing is, may my heart remain tranquil as I countenance the awareness that in this world there are people like this and people like that, and the more I can manifest goodness and kindness and get other people to do it and demonstrate it, the more I'm likely to convert all the world, including so-and-so, to that way of being so that we can all live together. That the principal beneficiary of metta practice is always one's own self. All of the metta comes through the agency of your own mind and heart, and to the degree that I keep it a conflict-free zone, my own mind and heart, I remain a happy person. So maybe that's the last thing I want to say. No, I have one more thing. <laughs> one more thing. One more thing. Uh, one more thing, because just as I think that each of the paramitas, each of the virtues is a manifestation of each other, there's a way in which metta, loving kindness, first of all, is a manifestation of wisdom. 
it's a manifestation that everybody is really faced with challenges. Anybody who you see, <laughs> uh, one of the things, there's a Wednesday morning group of people who's been meeting here for nearly 20 years, and for one person, for um, on one time it came up that someone said, I said, how are you? She said, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. She said, well, you know, really, my husband this and that, that, and that, 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 that. But really, I'm fine. <laughs> we said, well, that'll be the, the password of this class. We'll meet each other in the supermarket. We'll say, how are you? And the other person will say, we're fine. And we'll know that what that means is I have my stuff that I'm dealing with, but I'm dealing with it. And who doesn't have stuff? And remembering that we each have stuff, we are kinder to each other. We really don't want to increase the pain in the world. You know how when you go into a hospital and you're going to visit somebody and you go down the, the aisle in a, in a, in a uh, really acute ward, <coughs> an acute floor, and you notice how everyone has lowered their voice because everybody in all of these rooms is in trouble. And I think to myself, if we went around in the day and we realized that everybody is in trouble, we would all lower our voice mm -hmm. and be nicer and say a more kind word to more people than we meet. I really, really think of metta practice as what we do in the world in all of our meetings with people. And I love to teach it as a meditation. I want to say about it that metta is also a gratitude practice because the ability to bless depends on feeling that one's own cup is overflowing, comes from a place of generosity. It's also the antidote to uh, antipathy because you can't be blessing and at the same time be mad. It's like driving your car in forward and reverse at the same time. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's also mindfulness practice, because we really pay attention with um, um, acceptance and with kindness and with curiosity. That's a kindness. Every <coughs> moment of mindfulness is really a moment of compassion for yourself, not making a situation more difficult. This is the way it is. And this is what I should do now. It's the doorway to wisdom. It's the doorway to compassion. It's the doorway to absolute joy in other people's good fortune. Because uh, one's own story is not the question. It's the other person's story. Somebody said, Betsy Rose said, every moment that I'm not thinking of myself, I'm happier. <laughs> that was a great, that was one of the great fun mo's that I wrote, wrote down. Think about other people and wishing them well lifts up my own mind out of my own story. It's probably the best to finish with uh, the Dalai Lama, who said it's very mu makes very much more sense to um, rejoice in the uh, good fortune of other people than it does in your own good fortune, because your odds of being happy are six, million, <laughs> six billion to one that you'll be happy if you do it the other way around. So... I'd like to invite you to just close your eyes for a minute. One of the things that um, people who have practiced metta in the classical way will uh, remember is that we suggest to people that they find some rubric of blessing. The, simplest one, one that I often teach because it's the simplest, is a four-phrase blessing. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. Mm -hmm. 
I invite you to just think that for yourself for a minute. May I feel safe and happy and strong and live with ease. He asked people to say that for days on end. So just in this moment, we'll move on. But really, people can spend weeks and months and a whole life wishing themselves well. When we know how to take care of ourselves well, then we just love everyone else. In the classical unfolding of metta practice, one wishes well to oneself well to a mentor or a benefactor. Rick said this morning he thought about James a lot. Think about a mentor for a moment or a benefactor and say those phrases of blessing for that person. May you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. And for today, we'll move only to the next category of persons. Normally, one picks one beloved friend and makes those phrases of blessing, those wishes, prayers for well-being for that one person again and again and again. And the repetition of the blessing is calming to the mind and steadies it so that wisdom deepens and the understanding that we all are in this heroic venture of keeping our balance in the midst of challenge, in the midst of a complicated life, is held and supported by the knowledge of connection to people that we hold dear. What I like to do particularly, and what we'll do for today, is not go past the beloved friend, but will choose more than one beloved friend. So in your mind's eye, you could imagine the friend that you've chosen in front of you. And then pick another one. Invite that person into your circle. And pick another one. And another one. You can pick kin, friends, your mentor could be in that circle. Use this minute or two of silence 
to make whatever phrase of uniform blessing you want to. May you, may I, may we all feel safe and happy and strong and live with ease and just invite people individually by name into your circle so that your words that your mind says can be words of greeting a friend by name, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Surround yourself by friends who love you and whom you love. When you have enough people to keep you company, just rest in the pleasure of reflect reflected goodwill back and forth, reflected love. And just before we open our eyes, if you could imagine that the intention and the collected good wishes that we've felt in our lives from connections of lovingness between ourselves and the people who support us, we can make the collective wish that all beings everywhere feel supported by the people in their lives and that all beings everywhere have the means by which to support themselves and each other in strength and in safety and in happiness and live with ease. I always like to ask people when they open their eyes after doing that meditation to turn around to the person on one side and the other side and in words just say some blessing and touch them so that we connected in the real world. So please.
What a pleasure you are. I'm so excited to you. This is so nice. Listen, I, I'm thrilled for you. I could not be more thrilled. Really. You want me down? What is this? I'm finished, but you want to announce about my course? I got it. Uh, so I want to first mention, uh, we'll, we'll take a, a, a stretch in a moment, um, not a break, but a stretch. Uh, but I, I do want to mention uh, something about Sylvia uh, that you uh, might be uh, interested in knowing. She is going to be doing a four-week uh, meta class online uh, that starts in mid-March um, that uh, is, uh, is a really great deal. And uh, for, for, what is it, like $49 or so? for. Uh, and if you're interested, uh, you'd go to spiritualityandpractice.com uh, and uh, check out the four-week uh, meta class from uh, the Meta Master. Sylvia, uh, isn't she great? Um, and uh, I want to uh, actually, before we go on to uh, to the next piece, we have uh, we have two more pieces, uh, and finishing up with Adam Tupton Rinpoche, who's one of my favorite teachers uh, these days and good friend. Um, the next. Uh, thing I want to do. I want to do a song with you and uh, get us uh, singing together on this theme of loving uh, loving others and, and sharing our love with the world. So thank you so much, Sylvia, for, for being with us today. Got it? Uh, is this on? No. Now is it on? Yeah. So, um, so here's a here's the uh, for me the ultimate uh, sharing meta song, 
and that is uh, shower the people you love with love. Right? If you um, if you don't know the verses, then uh, the chorus is uh, it's pretty simple. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way you feel. Things are going to work out fine if you only will. <coughs> and then things are going to work out better if you only will. <coughs> Let's do the chorus a bit. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are going to work out fine if you only will. As I say, shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are going to be much better if you only will. How's it start? <laughs> you can play the game and you can act out the part, though you know it wasn't written for you. Tell me, how do you stand there with your broken heart, shamed of playing the fool? One thing can lead, one thing can lead to another. It doesn't take any sacrifice, oh father and mother. Oh, father and mother, sister and brother, if it feels nice, don't think twice. Just shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are gonna work out fine if you only will. Do as I say. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are going to be much better if you only will. You can run, but you cannot hide. You can run, but you cannot hide. This is widely known. What you're going to do? Now what you plan to do with your foolish pride when you're all by yourself alone. Once you tell once you tell somebody the way that you feel, you can feel it beginning to ease. I think it's true what they say about the squeaky wheel, always getting the grease. Better to shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are going to work out fine if you only will. What I'd like to do to you is shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are going to be much better if you only will. do 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 we're leading to the coda. Fade out with me. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Keep it up now. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you... 
Think of everybody that you love. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Softly now. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Let your love shine. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Love Okay, so uh, we're up to the ninth theme in Awakening Joy. After loving yourself and then sharing your love with others, the full flowering of connection as Sylvia was was mentioning and pointing to is the, the next step which is um, not only feeling the love and sharing the joy but letting the heart of compassion be expressed. Compassion is one of the divine abodes. It is a sublime state and it's a state that is a response to suffering. That suffering is actually required for compassion, for that sublime state. It moves us, we care, we have this capacity to care. And that caring is what is sublime. And as we feel that caring we are connected with each other, we're connected with not just the truth of suffering, but the uh, joy of interconnectedness that we can care about each other. So uh, Shoshana is going to um, uh, share with us a bit on this subject. As Sylvia was talking, I was thinking of that quote from Longfellow. So. If I don't have it right, James, and you remember uh, others, it's what is if we if we were to know the se- the if the secret. Were, go ahead. If we were to uh, read the secret history of our enemies, we should know enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. Oh. 
That's from Longfellow. I, I, I would think that many of you right now might be feeling that open heart, that feeling of expansion that naturally leads, as Sylvia was saying, to caring about others, to reaching out to others. <coughs> the word in, in Sanskrit that means, and in Pali that means compassion, is, is translated as the quivering of the heart in response to the suffering of another. You can, you can feel that, what that is. When we see another suffer, Truly, our heart is quivering. We are wired for compassion. Again, something Sylvia said, a couple of the ways that we are wired is there is the vagus nerve, which extends from the top of the spine. I'm sure some of you know this. Down through the chest, down through the spine. And this has been called by some the nerve of compassion because it's the one that when we see, for instance, the hero finally succeed in a movie, right? Or we read that, in, we read in a book some very touching story, or we see something very touching, or we hear of those heroic deeds. You feel that warmth spread through your chest. You feel that lump rise in your throat. That's a nerve that we have. We're set up to experience the 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 joy and the appreciation of others in doing good, heroic, compassionate action. We also are set up in our brains with something called mirror neurons. Uh, there, have been, uh, there have been research studies done on this. One of them shows that when someone's finger is pricked, a certain area of their brain lights up. When they're watching someone else have their finger pricked, the same area of their brain lights up. We, we, those, it's, it's called a mirror neuron. We have nerve cells that mirror the experience of others. We're set up to feel with others. That in English, compassion means to feel with. I would like to read uh, one little passage that I think would be neat. I thought I'd read a bit of Rose, just a little bit. Why I would like to read this one is because it, it does go that next step that Sylvia said compassion goes toward, which is, is, is feeling compassion and that quivering of the heart for those who we don't naturally feel that for. Um, and I mean, I'm going to confess that I can use some certain expletives and words around certain people in politics that, um, <laughs> that you know, that if I pull back and think of understanding something about them in the light of the Longfellow quote, I don't always do this, so really, I'm just appreciating how much this story can mean for another step. Rose is a doctor who went to Tibet, and in face of seeing all of the suffering going on of, of older women 
working on the roads because there was no other way for them to have a livelihood, of little children who had been orphaned, who had no food, who had tuberculosis, and then watching the women walking around with their prayer wheels in hope that by spinning those wheels their lot might change. And she began to feel very challenged in her own faith of, of what does that mean? What do these prayers mean? What, do these, what is going on here? She we came back to the United States, immediately went into a setting that was very posh. Hot tubs and you know, just a wonderful beauty setting. Uh, and it only threw her further into what is going on in the world. She began finding herself breaking down, feeling, I, why is it like this? I don't want it to be like this. Isn't there any way to make this change? She ended up at a retreat where she really went to try to deal with what was going on in her as she fell apart, as her heart just went into chaos. Rose knew that being on a retreat would not protect her from the overwhelming feelings she had in response to the suffering she'd seen in Tibet. In fact, it was the opposite. There would be no way to avoid that pain. So when she came face to face with its deepest expression, she didn't pull away. One day, as she was meditating, all the feelings came to the surface, and letting go into them entirely, she found what was on the other side. She says, I was crying and sobbing. My heart is breaking. My heart is breaking. And I just kept allowing that experience. All of a sudden, it became, ah, my heart is broken. My heart is broken open. It felt as though something I was holding on to had shattered inside. I'd broken completely wide open, and all of this love began pouring through. It was like I broken open into universal compassion. The grief and pain continued, but Rose now felt she was in the depths of a care of a vast and caring universe. There was no one to hold, she says, and no one being held. Just the deep recognition this is how it is in the world. There is this much pain. Beings are doing these things to each other. It's true. And there is this much compassion and care, this much love. I felt a deep love for all beings, all beings without exception. I saw behind the suffering to the beauty of each being. I could see the divinity in all the people I'd seen in suffering. The shining of who they were was untouched by the suffering. And the beings who were causing the suffering <coughs> had that same shining. Albert Schweitzer at a graduation ceremony said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but I do know that the only ones of you who will be truly happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. So the last thing I would like to read from this is um, a bit of the research about the salutary effects of giving to others. Numerous studies have shown that giving in various ways has a beneficial effect on the giver. One, according to the measures of a social capital community benchmark survey, 
those who gave contributions of time or money were 42% more likely to be happy than those who didn't give. I'm not sure how they measured that, but... Um, Psychologists have identified a typical state of euphoria reported by those engaged in charitable activity. They call it helper's high. (laughs) And it's based on the theory that giving produces endorphins in the brain that provide a mild version of a morphine high. Cheaper. (laughs) Healthier. Not as dangerous. Right, healthier. Research at the National Institutes of Health showed that the same area of the brain that is activated in response to food or sex, namely pleasure, lit up when the participants in the study thought about giving money to a charity. And the last one, at Emory University, a study revealed that helping others lit, that helping others lit up the same part of the brain as receiving rewards or experiencing pleasure. Uh, Shoshana um, suggested that I uh, share um, a bit of a passage and then uh, uh, do a practice together around compassion that uh, I've found very powerful. Uh, it's it's the opening chapter, uh, the opening of the chapter on on compassion, where I talk about how really I, this uh, this course was set in motion in. Uh, uh, many years ago, uh, when I was in college, um, and uh, got very, uh, very depressed and very uh, uh, puzzled about what the meaning was in life, uh, things didn't make much sense. It was the '60s, and uh, uh, that those crazy times. We were at war, and a whole lot of assassinations, and uh, I. Just I was reading a lot of Camus and Sartre and existentialists, and every everywhere I looked, I couldn't see where life had any meaning at all. Right, and uh, every conversation that I had with my friends or anybody who would talk to me, I would turn to uh, showing them that life had no meaning at, at all. My friends kind of started to keep their distance from me, uh, and then. Uh, Then I'll read this part. Then one day, while eating my lunch in the Queens College cafeteria, something happened that steered me in a new direction. As I sat there alone under my dark cloud, I started looking around at the crowd of people in the room, some talking earnestly together, some wandering around, looking a bit lost. Instead of falling into my usual habits of comparing myself to them or thinking about how isolated I felt from everyone, I began to just look at them as they were going about their business. Suddenly, they all seemed to me to be basically decent human beings, simply trying their best to find their way in the world. It was like the shifting of a kaleidoscope into a whole different configuration, and from that perspective, I understood that all they wanted was to be happy, and it seemed to me they all had that right. I don't know why, but in that instant, a philosophical insight occurred to me. The one thing that could give life meaning for anyone would be to bring happiness to others. That would be a noble endeavor in an ignoble world. 
As I contemplated the simplicity of my new theory, it gradually dawned on me that helping others in this way might be reason enough for me to be here and to live life fully. Could that be? Might there be something that would make life worthwhile? What if I thought of myself and my own life in this way, about bringing happiness to others? I felt a momentary rise of something inside as that little beam of light broke through my perpetual cloud. I left the cafeteria with a bounce in my step that had been missing for a long time. Those thoughts followed me around over the next few weeks, and the rightness of them kept growing. Somewhere inside, I think I knew that if I could help others find happiness, I would actually be happier myself. That would be a big leap for the cynic I'd become. It would take a while before I was living this new way of looking at myself and the world, but something changed that day that set me on the road to finding real happiness. For centuries, of Buddha, uh, students of Buddhism have affirmed their aspiration to serve others in this way by formally taking bodhisattva vows. The bodhisattva vow to, to find your own freedom for the benefit of all. Thirty years after my existential crisis and epiphany in college, I had the opportunity to do this in a ceremony led by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. In an auditorium surrounded by thousands of others, I repeated these words formulated in the 8th century that would induct me into this high-caliber club. For boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. Most Buddhist vows like this one typically push the envelope of possibility. I assume it's a way to keep us aspiring to our highest abilities. But as I spoke those words, meaning them as fully as I could, I realized I had taken my own version of this vow years before in that college cafeteria when I had that insight about helping others find happiness. Since then, I'd come to know the vow not as a heavy burden, but as a reminder of what gives meaning and fulfillment to life. Making a conscious pledge to yourself in this way can focus your aspiration to serve others. It's not necessary to be a Buddhist or get involved in formal ceremonies. You can do it your own way and create your own vows. However you may decide to do it, taking this step is a powerful prescription for an ever-deepening joy. And I'd like to invite us to do this exercise of creating your own bodhisattva vow. It's not complicated. Just relax, close your eyes. You can make up your own version of a vow to relieve suffering in the world. The basic principle is seeing your own happiness in the context of how it can benefit others. Take a few moments right now and ask yourself what words would sincerely convey that wish in a way that uplifts your heart. For instance, you might say something along the lines of, may my happiness lead to the happiness of others. When you've found the phrase that resonates with you, silently state those words as a promise to yourself. Connect with the sincerity of intention they express. Just take a few moments now.
seeing how your own happiness can be a gift to everybody that you know and all beings. Just because you care. Notice how your body and mind feel as you do this. Connect with that intention. So I hope you got in touch with something that comes from a place of just a genuine wanting to express your goodness and your happiness for the benefit of others. It's one of the most potent sources of joy. Nothing in it for you except that good feeling of caring as the Dalai Lama says, uh, we're the ones that benefit. He calls this selfish altruism. <laughs> and he says, this is a good thing. You, know? you don't have to pretend that it doesn't feel good. Let that altruism come because it's a great joy to yourself and everybody wins. So, thank you. So now it gives me a, a tremendous pleasure to... Um, introduce um, the, uh, the cleanup hitter for the, for the day, <laughs> as we say, uh, the heavy hitter in a, with a light touch and a light heart. And that is uh, my friend Anam uh, Tupton Rinpoche, who um, I've gotten to know the last couple of years uh, and has been, uh, it's been one of the great joys in my life. Uh, to uh, get to know him and call him friend. Uh, he's a, a really special uh, teacher and being. Uh, we've taught some together and we uh, have hung out together and gotten to know each other. He has a, um, a center in Point Richmond called the, the Dharmata Foundation. You can Google it. Uh, that meets on Sunday mornings. And uh, he has a wonderful book that's in the bookstore called No Self, No Problem that uh, <laughs> I've wanted to uh, turn the world onto. I've given a lot out of, uh, uh, of them out as gifts. It's a fabulous, um, pithy uh, Dharma book. And uh, I wanted him to talk about the last theme for the course and for the book. All the other practices up until now have been about cultivating, cultivating compassion and loving kindness and gratitude and things like that. The last wholesome state is simply the joy of being, where you're not trying to cultivate anything, where you stop all doing and realize that 
you are already, your true nature is already good and pure. And if you can relax enough and stop the efforting, you discover who you are and what you've been all along. Uh, and this is uh, something that is, is really the, the heart of what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about the liberation of the mind and the heart, where we, we don't have to struggle or fight or try hard. We just have to um, let go completely and see what's been here all along. And uh, I can't think of anybody I would rather have uh, share with you about that than uh, my good friend Anam Tupton Rinpoche. So please. Welcome everybody. Uh, right now I'm feeling tremendous uh, sense of joy for a lot of reasons. One of them is the fact that this wonderful book came out. I'm very joyous about it. As a matter of fact, uh, I feel that uh, my heart is uh, dancing to celebrate this uh, wonderful manifestation, this uh, book, a treasure of knowledge, and that holds the key to all the things that we have been aspiring for, freedom, joy, love, goodness. James uh, asked me, to share some of my secret <laughs> uh, to the birth of a joy. I don't have so much a secret, but I have some tips. <laughs> the, the joy is uh, what we are all longing for. There are, of course, a few levels of joys mundane level of joy, which is uh, based on the emotion, psychological spectrum. Then there's also the eternal joy, the highest joy, which Buddha called the, the Nirvana, and sometimes we call it the Mahasukha. I grew up in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, which has so much uh, emphasis on the notions of uh, Buddha's paradise. There's one Buddha's paradise, it's called the Sukhavati in Sanskrit, means the land of uh, joy. My grandparents are very devout Buddhist practitioners. Every evening before they go to bed, 
they throw their body on the ground and wish that they're going to be reborn in that Buddha's paradise. So I grew up with that belief system that there is a extraordinary dimension of a joy that we can realize. But then after I met with my teacher, especially my heart teacher, Lama Tsurgo, they showed me that the Buddha's paradise discovered is not actually outside. It's in each of us. And one of the premises of the teachings in Buddhist tradition, as well as in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, is that the paradise lies within each of us. The skavati is already in each of us. We just have to find a way to explore it. So that means we must hold this uh, faith, uh, this conviction that there is this uh, Buddha's paradise, literally, residing in all of us. It's a paradise of uh, eternal joy, freedom, and happiness. Not paradise filled with uh, peaches, flowers, <laughs> fruits, exotic animals, and birds. And that paradise is the natural true state of your being, your consciousness. Sometimes it is a dormant in each of us, and that's why we cannot see it, but it's already here. I call the path to enlightenment is a great U-turn, <laughs> the great spiritual U-turn. It's not so much about uh, great U-turn, great U-turn, yes, uh, great U-turn, right? <laughs> First, they have to pretend that uh, we are lost and looking for nirvana, eternal joy somewhere else, and then someday we realize that actually they're already here, so then we have to make that great U-turn. We have to come back <laughs> where we are and open our heart, mind, eyes, and to see what we have been missing all the way through. Therefore, Indian mystic Kabir said, spiritual seekers like the fish and the water who are extremely thirsty. <laughs> How silly it is for fish to be thirsty when she's swimming in that <laughs> celestial ocean. So of course this sounds very uh, theory to transcendent theory, but what I'm trying to express is that Joy, happiness is our birthright. And this is the very reason why we are here in this human incarnation. And everybody deserves life of freedom, joy, happiness. We all deserve it. But the question is sometimes uh, there are so many hindrances 
not so much from outside, but from inside. And that closed the door to all this goodness that our hearts are longing for. So in my experience, as well as also my many years of uh, practice in Buddhism, one of the key points to realize the ultimate joy, the unconditional joy, is to find out what is blocking our mind to experience that state we are talking about, the eternal paradise within. What is obscuring our mind? What is veiling? What is closing our heart? What is that ice mountain in each of us? Buddha said the finally the hindrances to the liberation, nirvana, is a wrong view. He said the wrong view is the ultimate obstacle. Wrong view is the inner veil. Because when we are walking around with that inner veil, then we cannot see what is in front of us. We miss if uh, uh, goodness, miracle, uh, beauty, and aggressor simply unfolding in front of us. We cannot see. Just like if I close my eyes right now, I would not see those uh, beautiful smiley faces of bodhisattvas in front of me right now. <laughs> Then I can close my eye and feeling very lonely, thinking that I'm lost, I'm middle of nowhere. Just like that, the Buddha said, the wrong view is the veil, the inner veil obscuring that state of our pure being, the paradise within. Of course, we can get into very heady, uh, complicated Buddhist uh, theory, speculation, what the wrong view might be. But if I use very simple contemporary language to descri describe that wrong view, to me is the wrong view that Buddha is speaking about is actually this belief that we have to have this and that in order to be happy. <laughs> to me, that is the wrong view. In, in some sense, if we turn our intention inward and to scan through our consciousness, we'll find that there are all these uh, wrong views lurking somewhere in the dark recesses of our consciousness. Because even though we are born as a pure, innocent, happy, joyous, uh, I'm sure many of you have been witnessing the birth of a child as well as the way child evolves. You see there's so much uh, innocence, joy, and freedom in the spirit of a child. But as we grow, then our mind is conditioned and indoctrinated to believe those fallacies. One of them is that I have to have this, I have to be like this, then I will be happy. <laughs> if I'm a little bit taller, then I will be happy. <laughs> If I have more hair, then I will be happier. <laughs> if I have uh, more money, then I will be happier. You see? Mm -hmm. If I was born in certain form, then I will be happy. Then I will be more joyous. 
If I'm spiritually more evolved, then I will be happier, you see. I transcended almost 84,000 neuroses except the one. Once I transcend that, then I will be happier. <laughs> Buddha said there are 84,000 neuroses, right? Actually, it's more than 24,000. So mind can come with all these reasons that why we should not be happy, why we should not be joyous, until we actualize that dream then fantasizes a condition, either physical condition or even spiritual condition too. So this is a, a practice that we can all utilize, like going inside and scanning through the consciousness and then detect that false belief systems. And if you look carefully into the foundation of those false belief systems, they are utterly irrational. They are simply lies. And they are simply just uh, erroneous concepts that have been frozen and crystallized in our mind. And through repeating the same tendency again again. So we can do such a meditation or form of self-inquiry to go inside. Of course, this is not a right now homework or spiritual assignment, but I recommend everybody just to take a moments every day and to sit and take a few moments to this very simple inquiry, which is go inside and to see what sort of forces blocking our heart and our consciousness to experience that eternal, that unconditional, the paradise of bliss, which is dribbling in all of us all the way along, from the beginningless beginning, if I use a Buddhist expression. And also, the joy is always available. Let me not talk about the transcendental level of joy as nirvana, but right now, I like to speak about actually very much a simple joy, like emotional joy, the joy that I was uh, sharing with you. I'm quite uh, happy, joyous right now because the wonderful book came out, and I, I ran into my friends, and uh, I was quite uh, also joyous to walk on this beautiful land, the meadow. There is a atmosphere of uh, peace and serenity. So I was feeling very joy. And I also noticed in my own life, if I hold those positive thoughts, for example, gratitude, appreciation, and trying to focus the good things in my life rather than the bad things in my life, I tend to be quite uh, joyous. Actually, my culture is a tea culture. We all are worshippers of tea in uh, Eastern Tibet. And recently, friend of mine and Tibetan Lama came to visit me. He stayed with me for almost uh, three days until kick him out. <laughs> <laughs> then I said, I have enough of you. <laughs> He's a very good friend of mine. But we, 
He's from my hometown, so he started making this particular tea. What you do, you put lots of tea bags into a, a pot, and then you boil, and then you pour almost a whole, not whole, but maybe half kind of a cream, and you boil it, and then you drink that whole night under three o'clock, <laughs> and talking and talking. <laughs> and I felt so much joy, almost uh, blissed out. <laughs> And three o'clock and more than, as if I won lottery, as if I won millions of dollars, you see? Perhaps I wouldn't be very happy if I won millions of dollars, then I have to think about, uh, maybe people want to get my money, you see? Then I don't know who's my friend or who's not. I could uh, actually construct a whole empire of unnecessary worry and uh, fear and insecurity, mistrust and arrogance too. But there's so much joy in a simple things, which indicated that actually joy is a natural state of consciousness. It's available to all of us. All we need is just, I could flip the consciousness, like flip the coin. One moment we find that our mind is a bitter, angry, depressed, and painting deliberately the color of reality ugly as possible. Next moment we can actually walk into another dimension that is filled with, uh, again, all the things that the Buddha was trying to express. Did Buddha say there are like 32 qualities of enlightenment, grace, goodness, beauty, love, compassion, etc. And in the same way, on the other hand, if you keep reciting like almost a negative mantra, life sucks. <laughs> Reality is <a> terrible. <laughs> Everything's going down, you see. I'm uh, whatever, not that great. And then we can just keep inventing new problems. And then as time goes by, our consciousness becomes this uh, heavy, dark cloud to the extent that we no longer even know the difference between what that reality is, what reality is, and what our perception is. i like to share a joke with you about it. A monk, this young monk who was very zealous, went to a monastery, and this monastery had a very serious as well as a severe training. And the feature of that training is that you go into a silence for 10 years at monastery, and then you can come out of that 10 years silence, and you're allowed to say only two words. <laughs> so this monk went to, to that training, 10 years silence. After 10 years silence, he came out, and he was allowed to say two words. He said, bad food. And that's all he was thinking about the last 10 years. <laughs> I'm sure he was very happy and frustrated. <laughs> then he went back to another 10 years silent meditation. <laughs> he came out. At that time, he said another two words. He said, hard bed. <laughs> uh -huh. And then he went to another 10 years silence retreat. And he came out. He said, I quit. And then 
the Grand Master says, it doesn't surprise me because since you have been here, all you did was nothing but complain. <laughs> I'm sure we all related to the mindset of that monk. And that monk is not so far from us sometimes. You may have a little bit of almost familiarity with that archetype, the monk who does nothing but sit there and constantly reciting the negative thought. So this is my uh, simple tip or my friend James called the secret, some secret how to be joyous. And then of course uh, we can get into more ultimate transcendental level of joy. And I think James asked me to elaborate some ideas on the topic of joy of being. Uh, maybe last year I came to one of your classes and even offered a very simple, brief uh, talk on this topic, the joy of our being. And to me, that is the, the ultimate joy. Let me offer you a, a verse that I've been reciting alone since I went to the, the traditional Buddhist training. It's a verse, and it's considered... Uh, one of the most profound teachings that there is in the Tibetan tradition. So let me recite that verse in Tibetan. Uh, means do not follow the past, do not anticipate the future. Uh, let your mind be as it is, and then the liberation or the nirvana comes into being on its own. <coughs> this is what they talk about also uh, in Tibetan tradition. We use this expression, I know this is getting a little bit too theoretical, but the idea is that if you divide your consciousness into four portions, one portion is just anger, hatred, and so forth. Another portion is desire, obsession, and so forth. Another portion is a delusion, ignorance, and confusion. Then there's another portion, the fourth portion of your consciousness. Is neither any of them. Is neither desire, hatred, nor delusion. Is simply pure. Is neither good thought nor bad thought. Is it neither pleasant emotion or is it unpleasant emotion? Is it neither actually spiritual or non-spiritual? That fourth 
portion of a consciousness, we say in Tibetan Shisha, Samtritirikpa, really doesn't belong to any uh, categories of a mind or thought or emotions. It's almost undescribable. Yet it is the ground, the basis of uh, our mind, uh, our consciousness, whatever word we like to use. It's the ground of uh, everything. And that is actually in some sense nameless, but the only name we can give is Buddha mind, primordial awareness, the ground of uh, all things. And that primordial awareness is already residing in each of us. Even in this very moment, we call it Togmi Ranajan means the primordial face. Means that is who we are. Just trying to imagine that is your own face, your primordial face. Just like I believe that this is my face. When I look into mirrors, whenever I see my face, immediately my mind says, oh, this is who I am. Either I love it or I don't love it so much, <laughs> depend on my mood. <laughs> <laughs> but my mind immediately said, this is uh, me, you see. And uh, sometimes, the, have you ever have this sense that whenever you see your own picture portrayed, there's a spatial feeling, oh, this is uh, me, this is my face, this is my uh, identity. So in the same way, this notion of a primordial face is actually that ground of uh, your consciousness, which is uh, intrinsically pure, good, enlightened, as it is, without adding anything to it, without subtracting anything from it, is your primordial face. That is who you are. That is actually your primordial face. Of course, this is who you are too. <laughs> this is who I am. But that is in each of us. And so, whenever we take a moment and let go of our conditioned mind, conditioned mind, which is totally wrapped up in hatred, attachment, delusion, some or another to a certain extent, when we take even just a moment break from that conditioned mind, and without necessarily doing anything, without necessarily analyzing anything, without necessarily trying to dismantle the, some kind of evil empire. <laughs> There's no evil, evil empire. Uh, have you ever seen this uh, uh, movie? I was actually visiting Bodaga many years ago. I did a circumambulation, and we had this joke among my fellowship. During the day, we tried to be very spiritual, and there's an evening in Bodaga. You don't have to be any more spiritual. <laughs> You go to restaurant and eat food. <laughs> you, and then in late evening you come back and meditate. I was there for a few weeks 
and there were lots of Tibetan restaurants. We went out, ate food, and gossiped, and so forth. <laughs> and one of the things that I never forget is that we were quite poor because I was doing pilgrimage, and that we saw these Indians actually showing at this movie. They turned Mahabharata into movie. And so, you know, Mahabharata as a war is a war between good and evil. So I'm sure everybody is familiar with this war. It's a spiritual war. It's the final war, war between good and evil. Either we're trying to fight against our ego or suffering or delusion, there's a war going on. And that spiritual war is a, actually, it's a holy war, but unfortunately, it's a still war. <laughs> so the Dharma Buddha called at least in Tibetan, we have translations of sutras, we say, Tsemit. Tsemit is a Tibetan word for ahamsa. Tse means harm. And met is a Sanskrit word. Ah means negative particle, means in Buddhism, dharma, the way to the liberation, the way to the happiness is actually absence of war. Not just the war that we see outside, but absence of every level of war, psychological war, as well as also spiritual war, too. So we even have to come to an end eventually that spiritual war is not about uh, sending a uh, luncheon hall Buddhist army of analysis <laughs> inquiry to fight against the evil empire of uh, whatever we project out there, either delusion or suffering or samsara or ego. So when we just let go of all notions of a struggle, all notions of a, all notions of everything. I like to use this expression, it's like jumping off the club and not caring what is there. Would that be fun? <laughs> just jump off the cliff and not even worrying what is down there. It could be a bunch of rocks, that's not good news. <laughs> it could be uh, just uh, empty space without end, that could be fun, you see. You'll be simply spinning ecstatically in this uh, empty yet endless cosmos. Or maybe th there could be some beautiful blanket, like beautiful paradise is waiting for you to hold you. Most probably that is going to happen. You see, this is what is going to happen when we just jump off the cliff, cliff of everything, cliff of that conditioned mind. So therefore, they use this expression in the Tibetan teachings uh, when they describe the meditation, they use this expression, supreme meditation. Arawab means let yourself fall down. Arawab means let yourself fall down, means don't care anything in this moment and just let yourself fall down because the ground that you're going to fall down is perfectly perfect. That's all I can say. <laughs> it's the ultimate truth. It's that primordial awareness. It's the Buddha mind. Therefore, so when we just let go of that conditioned mind and be, just be, then what happens when we be? Then we experience this uh, tremendous sense of joy of a being, simply being. 
Does this make sense? But please do not think that the uh, ground of uh, all things that I'm speaking about is some kind of esoteric, altered state of consciousness either. I'd like to invite everybody to experience it in this very moment because it's not over there, it's not somewhere else. It's actually very simple. One Tibetan teacher said, the reason we are not glimpsing the pure state of our mind is because it is too simple and it is too close to us. <laughs> so I know those uh, terminologies, the supreme meditation, the primordial awareness often gives this notion that what we are trying to figure out right now is utterly beyond our approach, but it's actually very simple. So I will ask everybody to just relax for a while, close your eyes, and I invite everybody to be totally wholehearted totally wholehearted and have this one moment intention as well as joy and to realize the primordial face As soon as possible, please hold that intention. Now, breathe naturally, relax your shoulders, and let your mind rest. Please do not try to close your mind. Let your mind be, let your mind uh, experienced world of phenomena, sound, smell, touch, taste. There's no need to go anywhere. Let yourself enjoy the world outside as well as the world inside. You may hear right now a bird flying, chirping, or you may heard somebody coughing. Just enjoy the world of phenomena. And then you may also notice that you're having a thought, sensations, just enjoy all of them. And now, just take one moment to pay attention inside. 
you will find there is a gap between thoughts. The last thought came to an end. The next thought hasn't arrived. There's a gap, especially that gap is quite noticeable when we are simply resting in this moment and let mind enjoy the world of phenomena without giving any comment to it, neither good nor bad, simply observe, then there's a gap between thoughts, which is always happening, but now we become much more aware of it. It's almost there's intensity of awareness of that gap between thoughts. So I ask everybody to just be with that gap for a while, and then thought arises, let it dissolve, then come back and keep observing that gap between thoughts again again. When you're completely in that gap between thought, when there's no longer a thought, not even the subtlest form of a thought, then if you try to describe the flavor of that experience, it is peace, it is joy, it is freedom, it is meeting with your long-forgotten companion, your true nature, your primordial face. So there's a joy. This is a joy of being. So let double in this state of joy forever to the best of ability. Please make that vow. Thank you. Thank you, Rinpoche. Thank you so much. I'm going to uh, close with uh, one, one last song. Uh, this is one uh, that I offer to you um, that is really uh, the essence of uh, Awakening Joy that I wrote many years ago. It's called, It's All in Your Mind. When people aren't there And you want someone to care And there's nothing really good That you can find Just be patient, let it flow Cause in the end you'll know that up or down, it's all in your mind. Well, you can grumble and complain and think of all your pain until you feel that life is just a bind. But you won't be really free until you let it be. Cause good or bad, 
the trip is in your mind. Oh, we've got colors for our eyes and music for our ears and lessons we keep learning all the time. And our hearts can be touched. There's so very much to wake up to every second of our lives. If you're gray and feeling down and can't seem to come around, fill your whole life is just one big boring grind. It'll stay there, that's for sure. And you'll never find a cure Until you see that it's all in your mind Your whole life is up to you Do with it what you want to You just have to seek and you will find That everything's within your grasp Be here now, not in your past And make it happy Cause it's all in your mind Make it happy Cause it's all in your mind So, Shoshana, come on up here. Shoshana, my wonderful partner. I hope you uh, will be here and uh, sign some books for a while. Thanks to uh, Anam Rinpoche and Sylvia and Eve and all the musicians and all the guests and Grania and all the volunteers for helping out. Just uh, share your joy with the world. That's your assignment, okay? <laughs> Take care. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.